entering the Freedom Hut. Paul Manafort gets piled on by Democrats in prosecutors' offices who are deciding to make an example of him. Guy's gone away for over seven years now. We've got the latest on that for you, plus this continuing to unravel scandal around college admissions. What really went on here? Should people be facing decades in federal prison? And also, Trump has grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 8 flights. we got a stack show, team, coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Paul Manafort caught a break today. He defied the law. He tampered with witnesses. He lied to prosecutors. He laundered money, evaded taxes, and he left with a sentence that in many respects fails to measure the severity of how he defied the justice system. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. The Democrats are a bunch of disgraceful, crazy liars these days. We know this. Blumenthal, an exemplar of this, didn't get a severe enough sentence. The guy, uh, Manafort, is going away. He's 70 years old. He's going away for seven and a half years in federal prison. All right. Today we had a Obama appointee judge who was very harsh on Manafort, said that she did not believe that he's contrite. He's only being contrite because he's caught. Let me just say that I have friends who are judges. I know some judges. They can pretty much say that to anybody. You know, the whole point is you show up in court and show contrition. You could take the, well, you're only contrite because you're caught by the time they're in the court. Of course, that's the case, right? Of of course, being caught is a part of this, but they didn't turn themselves in. Usually, sometimes they do. So this is uh, exactly what I expected to happen. And there's a lot here that we should pay attention to. I mean, for one, Paul Manafort is getting crushed because he worked for Trump. Let's understand that. Not only would he not be facing the financial and personal ruination that he has been subjected to, uh, they are making it even worse because they want him to be an example. On the one hand, they're, they're feeding him to the rabid maniacs of anti-Trump hashtag resistance land. That's one part of this. And on the other hand, they also want to send a message to anybody else who would ever even consider working for Trump, standing up for Trump, being aligned with him going into 2020, that if they can find a way, if they can create the pretext for it, they will ruin your life. That's why it's so important to them that Manafort, who... They went through everything he has, a special counsel, numerous prosecutor's offices. This guy's as high profile a target as you're going to find in the justice system. I mean, if you ask somebody, and this should tell you a lot, if you ask somebody in the DOJ hierarchy, would you rather be prosecuting the Manafort case or Chapo Guzman? I bet a lot of them would have said, oh, yeah, I'll take Manafort. Much, much bigger win for their career than putting away the biggest Drug dealer. I mean, Chapo is not just a drug dealer. 
He's a, a human trafficker, a mass murderer, a, uh, I mean, just go down a list of crimes. A drug dealer, obviously. Uh, Paul Manafort is a tax cheat. And I also think that we always should be careful thinking that tax cheats should be punished in the most severe fashion by the state when a lot of countries, developed countries, we always hear about, oh, look at the great health care they have in you know, Sweden. People don't go to prison usually for tax fraud in Europe. Just say it. You know what happens when you don't pay your taxes in Europe? They seize your funds and they make you pay big fines and they financially punish you. Usually you don't go to prison for a long time. That's a uniquely American statist thing for the free world. You know, that, that's, that's somewhere that I think we, need, we have some work to do. And I hear these people who say, oh, Manafort is rich and is white privilege, and that's why he's not going to jail for that long. He's going to jail for seven and a half years. Think about, everyone listening, think about where you were seven and a half years ago and everything that's happened between now and then. It's a lot of stuff. It's a long, long time. As if that were not enough, New York State came along and has now charged him with 16 crimes. That's right, 16 crimes from New York based on a mortgage fraud. And this is from the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, another Democrat, another lib. You know, it starts it starts to feel like maybe if you're a Republican, you got to move to a red state just so you don't get if you're going to be a prominent person who's in public life, just so you don't get some lib prosecutor who wants to make a name for himself coming after you. So why is it so noteworthy that one, they timed this thing out the same day that the second federal criminal trial ends with the judge giving Manafort his sentence as if one federal criminal trial wasn't enough. Now the state of or well, New York City, actually, it's the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, that, that he is uh, bringing these charges. Well, it's the Manhattan District Attorney for the state of New York. Uh, he will bring these charges against Manafort um, is just indicative of how much this is political. Because, as you know, Trump cannot pardon. Trump cannot pardon Manafort uh, from New York crimes. So even if Trump were to say, I'm the president, this is too much. Manafort's bankrupted and ruined. He's 70 years old. The guy just wants to be with his wife. I'm going to pardon him. New York's going to make sure he goes to prison now for mortgage fraud, which I, mean, I can tell you, having been in a been in a room where there was an, a, a discussion about whether somebody should be charged with mortgage fraud, who was a semi-literate at best immigrant who didn't really know what he was doing was wrong. It was pretty clear, definitely committed mortgage fraud. And this was we found this out in the course of another investigation I was involved in. And I put my foot down and was like. The, the uh, and he by the way he was a he was a non-white defendant okay so just this whole thing about oh people only care when the when the rich white people go to prison that's not true I was working in law enforcement at the time and this guy was definitely not white and uh, not even American really um, he was he was here uh, well I gotta remember his immigration status but anyway wasn't from this country originally and they wanted to put him away and I just said I'm sorry. The bank hasn't lost any money. All the payments have been made. Everyone has been made whole here. So the bank was, you know, he was a slightly riskier 
loan that the bank anticipated. We're really going to send, we're really going to separate this guy from, I think he had six or seven children. We're really going to separate him from his wife and all of his kids because of this. Now you could say, Buck, the law is the law. But as we know, and this is the problem, the law isn't the law in this country anymore. It's certainly not the case on immigration. It's certainly not the case at our southern border. And it's not even the case when it comes to the Espionage Act. We have a two-tier justice system in this country. And it's not as much as the, uh, as much as the left pretends. It's not just the, the rich and the poor. It's not a, a financial separation. There's a political separation. The left is willing to use the law for explicitly political means in a way that we on the right are just not willing to do. We just don't do it. It's not in our makeup. It's not in our DNA. It's not in our ethos to view the Department of Justice and prosecutors' offices as weapons of politics or as implements of policy the same way that the left does. So that's why you have... uh, Manafort now getting just the count of countless counts thrown against him. And they're coming at him with everything they have. Uh, He's a ruined man no matter what. There's so much glee in the media. People are saying that he didn't get enough time. I mean, he's sitting U.S. Senator Blumenthal. And Blumenthal's an imbecile. But saying he didn't get enough time. What would be enough time? Should he go away for 20 years, Blue? you know, Danang Dick? Should he go away for 20 years? Really? For what? He's pay- People say, oh, Buck, he cheated the federal government. Yeah, they got him. Guess what? He's paying $25 million in fines. So all the money that he didn't pay to the government, plus huge fines on top of that. So the government's been made whole. The financial crime has been wiped away in the sense that, you know, there's, there's the, the Treasury got their dollars, and we know the Treasury always gets their dollars. So who's the victim here? Why should this guy go away for so long? You know, a year or two in a minimum security thing. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Maybe three, maybe seven and a half plus New York state charges on top of it. Come on, folks. This is appalling. This is appalling. And for all those who are saying, and this is another common thing you're hearing from the left wing media. Oh, Manafort. He's only getting he's getting off light because he's rich and white. And, And look at all the drug sentences out there. Let's be clear that. When people are dealing drugs and they plead to any kind of a distribution charge, usually, usually uh, there are other charges that they did not plead to. It's just that the distribution and possession charges are the most easy to prove in federal court. So that's what that's what they go with. But there's often they're often part of violent, uh, violent drug gangs. Uh, There are people who have carried weapons while they were selling drugs, which is an additional felony on top of that. Uh, There are people that have engaged in violence to protect their turf, but they can't prove it. And also, if you're talking about any kind of opioid sales, they're putting lives at risk. They're killing people. I mean, if you're selling opioids to people who are addicts and they're overdosing, you're guilty of homicide. So all this, oh, it's just nonviolent drug crimes. You know, I got to walk that back sometimes because I'm sympathetic to the, hey, people shouldn't go away for, you know, for marijuana. It's legal in some states, you know, but different substances are different things. You know, if I sell somebody a caffeine pill, that's not the same as selling them fentanyl. And if you're illegally selling fentanyl, then guess what? You are putting lives at risk. You might even be taking lives. So, yeah, you should get a really serious sentence. So this whole, oh, nonviolent, uh, nonviolent crimes and the way they're prosecuted for, for drugs versus white collar crimes. 
Nobody overdoses because Manafort doesn't pay his taxes. So let's, let's try to line these things up and be honest about what's really going on here. And, and there's just another part of me, too, that I always try, I try to have some feelings, instincts, ideas that are, that are beyond politics. And that place of basic sympathy for a fellow American is one of them. I feel badly for people who have their lives ruined and are going to prison, uh, who have not done heinous things to be there. Paul Manafort has not done anything heinous and awful to go to prison. I'm not saying he's not a criminal. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve to pay a price. I'm just saying he's not a terrible person. Right? He's not some awful, dangerous human being. He's got a wife. He's got family, too. And even if people think that it's justice for him to go to prison, as, as I do, I do think it is just that he serves some time. I don't take any joy in it. And I don't take any joy in the ruination of people as a general matter. I think there's something really sick and wrong with those who are cheering for the destruction of individuals and for their families along with them. And the left-wing media and the Democratic Party, I mean, it has become completely acceptable on the left to be rooting for members of Donald Trump's family to be prosecuted and sent to prison, to be rooting for people in Trump's inner circle like Manafort and others to be destroyed and sent to prison. Uh, this is disgusting. Uh, this is a disgrace. And especially because they're not, they don't even know what crime may or may not have been committed. They just want them destroyed. And they have no decency about this, no interest in mercy or grace or kindness. Uh, the Democrats, it's always so interesting to me, they, they think of themselves as the good, nice people because they have the policies that gives the poor people free stuff. And, but they conduct themselves in the political wars that are going on in this country right now as utter savages who run around bayonetting all the survivors all the time. I mean, they just don't care. And you see this with the, the glee that the imprisonment of a 70-year-old man for almost a decade, who's not, you know, he's going to be separated from his wife and his family, probably will die in prison. Do they sleep better at night now because of this? The Democrats feel like this is such a great thing. There's no collusion proven. He's not a traitor. People call him a traitor. I say, based on what? They don't even know what he was doing lobbying in Ukraine, not in Russia, by the way, and was always trying to get the Ukrainian oligarch that he was working with and, and, uh, and politicians to go in a more pro-Western, pro-American direction. So there's actually an argument to be made that Manafort was useful to American foreign policy interests, believe it or not. But he cheated on his taxes. But they're not mad about that. They don't care. What about Al Sharpton and his taxes, everybody? I mean, you want to play this game? How many MSNBC hosts owe some back taxes? But Manafort is tied to Trump, and anyone tied to Trump must be destroyed, and anyone who is destroyed who is tied to Trump, that's a good thing to be celebrated. That's how the left thinks of things, because their souls have been corrupted by their hatred of this administration and the brainwashing of the media, and it is both sad and destructive. We'll be right back. 
So as a parent, how much sympathy would you have uh, for these parents who are embroiled in this alleged cheating scandal? Zero. Zero. Okay. That was Elizabeth Warren, in case you didn't know. A lot of people find it kind of rich that uh, Elizabeth Warren, Cherokee, as she used to describe herself, has no sympathy for parents who are trying to get their kids into these elite schools. You know, this is one of these stories, my friends, that is getting the attention of all kinds of folks because there's lots of different ways to approach it and look at it. But this recurring theme that we have here in the Freedom Hut of how the elites aren't nearly as exceptional as they think they are and how that creates insecurities among them and we see them now more for what they are than at any other point in our history the elite schools uh cheating scandal ties into all of that because what is the first thing that people will fall back on who are the ones running things in this country you know the ones who are at the top of the power pyramid in this country what's the one thing that's supposed to be their their symbol of meritocratic excellence right the one place where they they've they've earned it not with everybody right but usually it will be their school what school did you go to and this is a a a pretty recent phenomenon where that's now a part of your identity i mean i have to laugh i i see people that go to the gym where i'm in dc still and you know they're they're in their 40s they're in their 50s and and they're still wearing and I see the same folks over and over. They're still wearing all their, their college gear. And, you know, look, if you went to Ohio State and you want to rep Ohio State, that's great. But there's some people that show up with their Harvard Business School T-shirt a little too often. You know, it's like, I think you own other T-shirts. People really take a lot of personal value from this experience. And the thing is, they don't care if they how they got there. They just like the perception. There's a tremendous amount of ego and vanity that plays into this whole school game and the arms race around it that that pushes people to do all these crazy things to try to get into these schools and i think this is a good thing for us to really pull apart and look at and what does it tell us not just about the nature of the academy in this country and how corrupted it is but also are the elites really as elite as they pretend to be that's coming up This plays into a deep worry the American people have, and I share that worry. You know, and we see it in politics. This was appealed to by Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. You know, is the system rigged? Do you remember when Donald Trump said, is the system rigged? Bernie Sanders asked the same question. Turned out in his case, he was, it was right. And, and people believe that America is about equal opportunity. Of course, the system is rigged. Is this news to anybody that the education system in this country at the elite institutions is rigged? It's a precious commodity. It's a credentialing system. It's not really intellectual and certainly not ethical training for the next generation. Elite schools and the crush to get into them is all about gaming the system, influence, finding your way because just being the best in your class just being a straight a student and a really good guy or gal that everyone you know class president and all that that doesn't cut in a lot of these places i mean you'll get in somewhere but you're not going to get into your dream school necessarily 
There's too many. There are too many high schools, too many students. And you're talking about that really upper echelon of the top 50 schools in the country, maybe the top 100. And how many millions of college students matriculate every year? I just think it's funny. This, oh my gosh, you mean that you mean to tell me that people are cheating to get into college? Of course they are. Now, I'm not saying it's okay. What's so interesting is when I try to get into the different aspects of this, I, I get a lot of heat from people, especially out in the Twitter sphere. And I'm saying, you know, do we really need people to treat this as a federal RICO investigation? You know, this is this is racketeering. Uh, do, you know, and, and there are some interesting parallels to be drawn between what the advancement office does, which is give us a check, and what was going on here, which is give the coach for this team a check. And there was a great analysis on Bloomberg today by a guy named Matt Levine that I think really explains this. And I think this is a unique take on this because he understands the insider trading, uh, insider trading law. Now, just a real quick overview of that. You cannot, you cannot trade on non-public information that, and people always think, well, that means you can't use information other people don't have. That's not true. People trade on information advantage all the time. It's not about fairness. Material non-public information that violates a fiduciary duty you have or that someone has, that's where insider trading comes in. So if you're the officer of a company and you have a fiduciary duty to that company, you can't act on that information and you can't give that information to someone else to act on, nor can they act on it. But it's not just that, it's not about what's fair, as this guy talks about it. It's not about what's fair. The stock market's unfair all the time. People have all kinds of advantages that are built in, faster trading desks, faster execution on their orders. And by the, in, in the same way, the college admissions process is not fair. You got, you got minorities who get a huge advantage, depending on what, not Asians, but blacks and Hispanics, huge advantage in the application process. Just a fact. People get so uncomfortable when you say this. Just a fact. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, we're not supposed to talk about this. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, Muslim students don't have a big advantage when they apply. I always think that's, you know, so you can be a Middle Eastern, you know, uh, Arab Muslim, and that doesn't really help you get into school. But if you are Native American, huge help to get into school. If you're a black, huge help to get into school. Uh, and same thing if you are Latino, Hispanic. But the pro, you know, so there are all these different ways. And yeah, there's legacy, but as I've been, you know, legacy is not what people think. It's not the surefire thing that people think it is because there's too many people with kids that graduated from these schools. So legacies end up just competing against each other. For those who really want to know, I have friends who have worked in college admissions and I've talked to them extensively about this. And they've worked at elite places, Columbia University, Amherst College, places that I know. You're competing always against buckets, meaning that, you know, if you're a, a white middle-class kid from Indiana, you're competing against other white middle-class kids from the Midwest. If you are a, uh, a you know, Latino you know, musician from inner city Los Angeles, you're competing against other Latinos from the West Coast, maybe who play an instrument. I mean, they, they really look at you in, in buckets. I mean, that's really your competition. You're not competing against the whole class. Men compete against wi uh, men, women against women, although now that's probably gotten more complicated because what do they identify as? Uh, but they, they look at this as pulling together this, 
diverse group. So you're competing against your own identity group within the diversity pool. But this Bloomberg analysis says that the, the real way that these people went wrong with this massive and it is it's amazing to read about this stuff and people were uh you know they were clearly very desperate to get into schools that aren't exactly going to set you up for life either which i find very strange uh there must be such an anxiety among these parents i mean i, I don't i don't like to be somebody who's a, who acts like a school snob or anything but you know if you're going to a second or third tier uc school university of california school you shouldn't have if you have to cheat to get in there, you should really think long and hard about whether you should be going to a four year college at all. Uh, but the problem that you had here with with these people is that they uh, they paid off the wrong person. And that's what this Bloomberg analysis said today. Uh, you have all these people and this guy, Rick. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. William Rick Singer, who bribed SAT and exam administrators. I mean, that is just that is just cheating the system. That's not a close call. Uh, bribe coaches and administrators to use their admission skills to get people in uh, or their, their admission clout to get people in operation varsity blues, which is a pretty watchable, but terrible movie at the same time. I got to say varsity blues. Those of you who haven't seen it, it's Ali Larder's finest work. Uh, see, some of you know who Ali Larder is. You'll know it from varsity blues, but the problem is they paid off the wrong people. You're not supposed to pay off the coach. You're supposed to pay off the the advancement office. And what this really is, is the universities treat these slots as a valuable thing. This is their property. This is a thing of value. So if you're going to game the system, you have to game the system the way that they tell you to. You know, this is like, you know, the, the airlines get to determine that first class seats cost twice as much, sometimes more than that, as an economy seat. And it's not okay for you to just go and take one of those first class seats. You have to pay the price they want you to pay. Even if no one else is going to sit in it, it's their property. You have to pay the price they want you to pay. And that's fundamentally, I think, why this is being treated this way. And then on top of that, there's fake foundation payments, there's money laundering, there's, you know, wire frauds. I mean, people were trying to hide all this stuff too. And really the cover-up stuff for the payoffs is going to end up being worse, I think, criminally for these people than the original payoffs. But got more on this in a minute, team. Stay with me. That person 30 years from now is going to be running some hedge fund, right? And maybe raping and pillaging in the economy, running some nursing home, levering it up with debt. People are going to die a little bit, overdose a little bit on pain medication, whatever. Really nice conversation without talking about Donald Trump. I don't know why. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Or break Kavanaugh. I just got to say, Americans need to wake up. This is not the first thing. Our president essentially got where he got through doing many of the similar things with taxes and his own somebody, education. Somebody in the White House. See the cheating scandal at MSNBC? It's, it's always an opportunity to do a little virtue signaling, talk a little social justice, act like the, the, the only problem in this country is that the rich people force everybody else to do all these bad things. They give them cancer. They take their homes. They do all these terrible things. Meanwhile, everyone at that table that was talking there at MSNBC, they're all rich. Isn't that, isn't that so weird how that happens? See, you'll get a table of people, you know, Joe Scarborough with his big swoop of hair. The swoop, the Scarborough swoop does not compare to the Sexton swoop, okay? Mine is like normal. His is, you know, he's trying way too hard. And then you get Mika and you have uh, uh, Gerard Artis. 
And they're all sitting around. These people are all very wealthy. Multi, multi, multi-millionaires. The, the Mika Joe, you know, Joe Mika situation, they're probably worth tens of millions of dollars between the two of them. But they're, oh, they hate people with more. That's one of the things about the rich left, but not the super rich left, is that they are always antagonistic toward people that have more than they do. And, you know, this, this is just what you can expect, is that they use this as an opportunity to try and slam on those that they don't like. And they don't like anybody who has access and privilege and power who's not a liberal. You know, uh, you know, if you're a liberal and you have those things, you get a, You get a pass. Uh, but this this turns into a whole white privilege thing for the left, the whole college cheating uh, admission scandal. And if you look at the names of many of the people involved in this, they're they're not white based on the names of, of some of the people in the indictment. So uh, some of them have foreign names. So it's not entirely a white privilege thing. It's a it's a wealth privilege and wealth is a privilege. That is true. People who are wealthy are very, very lucky. Uh, but the left is just they're unserious when they talk about the issue of college admissions. You know, they they love affirmative action, but we can't talk about affirmative action. But they pretend to hate legacy admissions. Meanwhile, you know, I mean, you look at uh, the people, you know, in the media, uh, your favorite CNN news anchor, Jake Tapper. Guess where his dad went to school? Dartmouth. Oh, you mean he was a legacy to his school? Wow. I guess he just picked the right one there. You got lucky picking the one school his dad went to. Right. I mean, you look at a lot of people in the media. And their legacies themselves. But then they go on TV and say, well, I'm uh, I'm so opposed to legacy admissions because, you know, they got theirs and now they want to act like they're too good for that. <laughs> One of the favorite games I see is people that are that are going on TV and saying, you know, well, I went to a fancy school, but I didn't need to to be as successful as I am. Before they say, Buck, you say that. No, 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 no. What I say is that people should work for a year or two before they go to school. And I wish I had done that because I would have even made better use of the college that I went to and the very, uh, yes, the very, the very real privilege that I had of going to a place that opened some doors, not that many doors, not really, wasn't as useful as I had hoped it would be. Uh, Stephanie Rule over at MSNBC, she's okay with cheating, by the way, as long as you do it the right way. This was interesting. Play eight. Anybody who actually works in the university will tell you this doesn't shock them entirely. We have seen this before. What makes this so egregious is that they didn't attempt to rig the system later. Most parents have their kids apply, and if they don't get in, that's where you mention the check. The fact that you are trying to bribe people up front, the chat, the fact that you're willing to break so many laws to do so, that's where the real issue comes but Jason, in. Jason, here's the stupidity. They could have rigged the system ahead exactly. of time. When their kid is in the seventh grade, they can meet with the development officer. If you have $1.2 million, make your kid good at fencing right exactly <laughs> yes. these people aren't even smart i think it's interesting that she was correct there you can meet with a development officer early on and buy and this is known i i know people whose families have done this uh the other guy who was saying they waited too late he, he doesn't know what he's talking about that's not how this system works um, but why is everyone so obsessed with this college system and and of course the media because you get a lot of people in media that you know they were the people look they're people that have a somewhat similar background to me and that they went to a school that's considered elite admission and they didn't want to go necessarily into wall street or into business and so what do they do they go into the media and the only credential that many of them have to uh rest their hat on is wherever they went to undergrad 
and nobody really cares, but everyone still has this fixation on where they went to undergrad, especially uh, on the East and the West Coast in the major cities. And you think, why would somebody who's so wealthy, you know, there's a lot of of interesting layers here, but why would someone who's so wealthy care so much about his or her kid going to an Ivy League school? Why why does, if, if you're that rich, the doors are going to be wide open. There's lots of connections. You know, you don't have to go to an Ivy League school in order to have connections and access. It just is helpful. But if you're really rich, you can just buy the access you need. Ah, but you see, there's also a need for the people who have been given everything, who have not had to fight for it, who have had the doors wide open for them all along. They have to feel like they have the respect of other people and that somehow they've earned it. And this is why Al Gore and George Bush and just go down the list of a lot of different politicians that you can think of, for example, from very wealthy families, the Kennedys, you know, all the Kennedys, you know, you get to go, if you're a Kennedy, you get to go to Harvard. You know, if you're a Bush, you get to go to Yale. You know, if you're an Obama, you get to go to, I don't know, where are the Obama daughters? Are they already in school? Are they at Stanford? I forget where they are, but you know, you get to go to these places. Why does it matter so much to the very rich and very powerful that their children go to these institutions when the truth is that they don't need to? The reason is because of ego. Ego for the parents that they've managed to get them into one of these elite institutions, but also the ego of the individual that they want everyone else to believe. Believe that they have earned their privileged position later in life. I I know plenty of Trustafarians, you know, somebody who grew up in New York City, Trustafarians who went to fancy schools and have done nothing with themselves. But they like that when they're socializing with their fellow elites, going to a job that maybe is at a fancy place, but they don't have to work very hard at, they can say, well, you know, I went to Brown. Brown, by the way, is a huge offender on this list. That's right, Brown University. I'm calling you out. Uh, You know, they went to Brown or they went to, you know, the University of Pennsylvania or, you know, you name it. And everyone's supposed to think, ooh, well, you know, you must be one of the good, smart people because you went there. And it's not because your parents were super rich. It's, it's all personal branding. That's what drives so much of this. Especially at the, for the ultra-wealthy, you go to these schools because it, it adds a layer of you've earned it, even though everyone knows you haven't. For the kids where the libraries are donated and everything else. What the uh, social justice left doesn't want to talk about is that the uh, the overwhelming uh, number of kids in these elite schools come from the top 10% of income earners, which doesn't make you rich, but obviously makes you not poor. And they're all fighting it out with each other. And there's so much more excellence in that upper middle class range than these schools can take academically that it's a total dogfight. You know, if you're in that category of somebody whose family makes, you know, uh, uh, 150 to $500,000 a year, for example, and, you know, that's your household income. Guess what? You're fighting it out with every other kid from across the country who comes from a family with like, which is a family of means. It's a well-off family, of course. But you're not donating a building to get in. And most of those kids are also the legacy kids. And the legacy kids tend to have very similar SAT scores to the overall admits. It's just legacy is what gives you a leg up on other kids that you're competing with of similar backgrounds. That's how these processes really work. I know everyone's going to act like, oh, it's just all the rich kids and it's all white privilege. And nope, that's not what's going on. But the left isn't interested in the truth. 
Don't you love it when you find a $100 bill inside of a jacket you haven't used for ages? It feels great. Well, imagine finding hundreds of dollars in the papers that are sitting in your filing cabinet desk or the boxes in your attic. You know, from that 401k that you had in the job before last, the one you forgot about. That money is sitting there gathering financial dust, but it could be working much harder for you in a precious metals IRA. My friends at Noble Gold can see if you qualify and they'll do all the heavy lifting for you. Making you thousands could cost you nothing. Give Noble Gold a call at 877-646-5347 or just text my name, that's B-U-C-K, to 511-511. Again, text BUCK to 511-511 to receive their free investor's guide. Plus, if you have a qualified IRA above $20,000, they'll include a complimentary rare graded Morgan Silver dollar valued at $150. So text BUCK to 511-511 or call 877-646-5347. Individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard tax rates may apply. I think the judge showed that she's incredibly hostile towards Mr. Manafort and exhibited a level of callousness that I've not seen in a white collar case in over 15 years of prosecution. So you- That was Manafort attorney Kevin Downing saying that Judge Amy Berman Jackson, an Obama appointee, just saying, uh, was very hostile to his client. Well, what is the truth of this? What should we make of all these things coming together today? The state charges from New York, the second set of federal charges here in D.C. We got the man with all the answers and the man with the plan himself. Mr. Andy McCarthy joins us now. He is former federal prosecutor, decades in the Southern District of New York. Also, he is a Fox News contributor and a uh, editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you. Buck, great to be with you. All right, so let's start with this, Andy. Is, is the stuff happening to Manafort fair, as in, is this what would happen if he were not? I mean, we have one one federal criminal trial, another federal criminal trial, and now a set of charges from New York State. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, I you know, I think some of it, Buck, is nakedly political. Some of it is terribly unfair. And some of it, it happened because Manafort's a bad guy. And, you know, it's not always easy to sort all that out. But I think if, you know, the cosmic justice question is, would he ever have been prosecuted if he didn't join the Trump campaign? And I think the answer to that is no. That's what got him on their radar. Uh, You know, I heard people say today, well, they were looking at him uh, before the Trump campaign stuff happened. And my answer to that is, you know, he was doing stuff in Ukraine since 2004. And they did look at him and nobody ever prosecuted him. And we had, I think I looked into this recently, I think there was a grand total of six um, Foreign Agent Registry Act violations that were um, prosecuted the last half century. I'm not half century. Yeah, half century, the last 50 years. And only three of them, I think, ended up in actual uh, charges of uh, FARA violations. So I think, you know, if Manafort's argument is, A, no one would have ever prosecuted me if I didn't come on their radar because of Trump, and B, they changed the rules in the middle of the game because they didn't used to prosecute what I did, and now they do, I think he's got a very good argument. On the other hand, the case was built on tax fraud, money laundering fraud, and you know, witness tampering, which he ultimately agreed to, and some bank fraud. And the fact of the matter is, those are crimes. And, you know, if they if they are investigated and it turns out you committed them, um, then, 
you know, they get prosecuted and maybe you came on the government's radar screen uh, by something that was uh, politicized. But, you know, if you commit millions of dollars of fraud, however you get on their radar screen, it's hard to feel too terrible for you. And Look, I, I think I've thought along, any that it strikes me as as some as pretty it's fair that he's going to do some prison time. I mean, I, I, and, I and, and it's I think it's also clear to your point that he, he did break the law. And, you know, it's one thing, you know, if, if a guy is like shading his taxes a little bit and he owes the IRS 15 grand, you know, you tell him to pay the 15 grand. You owe the IRS. I think it was what was it? Uh, six. It was millions. I mean, it was six million or 10 million. It was a, it's a large sum of money. Yeah, you know, you, you got to pay a higher price for that, obviously, uh, you know, deterrence prosecution, if nothing else. But but, you know, what I want to know is how do we explain New York state charges? I mean, it seems like to, to the point about what's nakedly political here, that to me seems like they're just throwing that on top. They're, they're doing a pile on here so that there's no hope that Manafort, even if Trump did commute or pardon him, wouldn't go to prison. Yeah. Now, I think I, I think you're absolutely right that that is completely political. Unfortunately, uh, we New Yorkers are living in a one party state where it's very political and they don't mind it being political as long as the, uh, you know, the people on the wrong end of the sword are the, are the Republicans. So, you know, what you hope is going to stop. Uh, sinister prosecutors from doing stuff like this is is that the political blowback of nakedly using the political using the prosecutorial power for political reasons is something that most people don't like and find frightening. I I, I wonder if uh, you know the the state that gave us uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez will ever see it that way. Uh, on the other hand, there's always another hand, Buck. Um, for for um, Manafort's purposes. I remember when I was a prosecutor that we had a lot of cases where we could bring a racketeering case and New York could bring a bunch of uh, crimes that could be fit into a racketeering prosecution, but they were state crimes. And we always needed to let them go first, because if we went first under the New York state and we being the federal government, um, under the New York State Constitution, they have a doctrine that's called um, equitable double jeopardy, which means if you've been prosecuted by the feds, you can't be prosecuted by the state. It's unusual in, it, because most of the country follows what's known as the, um, the dual sovereignty doctrine, which is that there's no double jeopardy protection from a subsequent uh, state prosecution if you've been prosecuted federally they're deemed to be two different sovereigns so they don't jeopardy each other out so to speak but in new york it's different so i would imagine that manafort has a very strong uh, uh double jeopardy argument against the new york prosecution under the new york uh constitution what's interesting is what happens if trump pardons him um, if, if Trump were to pardon him, that that legally has the effect of vitiating, uh, eradicating the underlying criminality. And that arguably would open the door for New York to prosecute him, because then there's nothing you know, there's no federal jeopardy. So what I might do if I I'd have to explore this a little more. But if I were Manafort and I didn't really care that much at this late stage of my life about the stain of having convictions on yeah, my he wants a commutation not a pardon yeah precisely 
Yeah. 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 That would that makes sense. And that's by the way, I actually think that that's also a more fair because Manafort broke the law. I'm not some Manafort chill, but I can see what's going on here. And they, I mean, Andy, also, just so I put this aside, this kind of reminds me of CNN just happened to be there when uh, when Stone got arrested. Sure. Um, the, the timing of this one within hours of the of the judge federally sentencing him. I, I don't believe that that's a coincidence and, and we shouldn't. Right. No, of course. Well, I mean, in the business that you and I were in, um, you know, we don't really believe in. We, there's a presumption against coincidences, right? They, we, we hear about a lot of them, but when we investigate them, very few of them actually turn out to be coincidences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And just before, you know, we got other things I want to bring you back in a moment and, and get into the Lisa Page, uh, the latest of what's going on behind closed doors on Capitol Hill about Russia collusion and all that stuff. But let me ask you this. Manafort is facing. I, I heard this today on Fox and I found this one hard. to. I know that federal sentences and, and you used to be somebody that was prosecuting them. So, you know, this very well. But federal sentences shock a lot of people with how severe they are. I mean, if you go the full, you know, the full duration under the statute in prison um, today, though, I saw or I heard rather from Fox that the state charges level against Manafort could send him to prison for over 100 years, theoretically. And yeah. isn't this a little nuts? Well, it's a, it's a mortgage but, fraud. Know, but, but, Buck, the, the federal charges that he faced in the two indictments, which is why I thought part of what Mueller did here was a joke, um, I think they aggregated to about 300 years. And I remember oh, there was God. one week about, a, a, I want to say, uh, 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 April or so of, um, or March of, of 2017, where one day, he indicts Gates and Manafort for like 200 years exposure. And then the next day he pleads out Gates and he gives him a sweetheart deal that caps him at, you know, five years or 10 years, whatever it was. And if you look at what what the uh, Washington case was today, what Mueller did was and this, I think, is a reprehensible practice. Uh, what he would do is he would stack charges uh, when he when he initially charge someone in order to make it look like an overwhelming case uh, in order to intimidate the person he charged. And then when it was time to plead them out, they plead them out to a song. So today, Manafort pled guilty to a money laundering conspiracy and a witness tampering conspiracy. Each of those charges is supposed to be a 20-year charge, but Mueller, to get the plea, gave him two five-year charges which meant that even though the sentencing guidelines were something like 25 years, the most Manafort faced today was 10 years, and then the judge only gave him 47 months. So, you know, I hear all these people talking about how, you know, he got really um, screwed today, but I got to say, you know, it could have been a lot worse. If Certainly if I had been charged in the case, it would have been a lot worse. Yeah, everybody. Andy's told me if you were guilty, you didn't want Andy to be your prosecutor back in the day. Well, no, but, so. but I mean, that's what's that's Justice Department guidelines. It's not me. I mean, that's you're supposed to charge the most severe, readily provable count. And what Mueller did was he, he basically gained the system to inflate things when he charged them and then give away the store to get people to plead guilty. I mean, is is that almost unethical, what he's done then, Andy? I mean, how would you describe Mueller's conduct? I would describe it as flouting Justice Department guidelines, and that's not supposed to happen if you have adult supervision. But it seems to me that the deputy attorney general who was supposed to be supervising this thing 
uh, basically let him do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. Andy, I've got some stories for you about Rod Rosenstein. I don't know if you have stories, but I'll have to tell you those offline. But uh, he is yeah. not covering himself in he has not been covering himself in glory in the last uh, last couple of years. Yeah, guys, we're going to come back with Andy here to talk to to talk to him about some of that, the special counsel and all that. So stay right there. When you want to spot that burglar when he's casing your home or after he's in, ask John, whose blink camera alerted him to burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose Blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, Blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. In a moment, I'll tell you how to get 20% off all Blink Outdoor XT camera systems. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two lithium batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on kids and pets from anywhere using your Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable. And right now, Blink Outdoor XT camera systems are an impressive 20% off. But hurry, this sale ends March 16th at midnight Eastern. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash sale. Again, that's BlinkProtect.com slash sale. B-L-I-N-K Protect.com slash sale. Blink is an Amazon company and it works with Alexa. Okay, team, we're back with Andy McCarthy of National Review and Fox News. Uh, Andy, a a lot going on. This story not getting nearly as much attention as as I would think it it would or it should. And there have been some revelations uh, from the closed-door testimony. The transcripts are out of what Lisa Page, whoever knows, had the relationship with Peter Strzok at the FBI, was close to, she was a senior FBI lawyer, very close to these uh, Russia and Hillary, the Russia collusion investigation, the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Uh, what what do you make of one her saying that Obama's DOJ essentially, or people who ran the DOJ and the Obama administration, it was kind of a close call whether to charge Hillary or not, and then they actually didn't go for it. Well, Buck, I've always said from the beginning that there was no way that the Justice Department was going to let the FBI charge. Hillary Clinton with anything. Forget about espionage, anything. And I also said that um, Obama made it quite clear, not that I think he had to, uh, that he did not want his Justice Department to charge Mrs. Clinton when he made public statements in April of 2016, saying that he didn't he didn't think what she did was serious or, or anything worthy of prosecution. So the only thing I've always been um, really... Uh, confused by in this whole thing and and irritated by is I don't understand why the FBI and Jim Comey took the bullet for this one. I've never understood that. I don't understand why. um, I I think what Comey was trying to do was protect the reputation of the FBI by trying to show that they did a thorough investigation despite the, the politics here. But I don't know why he didn't just complete his investigation. They had this mountainous evidence of wrongdoing and then just dump it in Loretta Lynch's lap and let her decline to prosecute. I don't know why the FBI took the bullet on this one. And just with with the the Mueller probe uh, apparently wrapping up now and it's in its final stages, uh, we keep being told that I've been told this by people, you know, offline at the DOJ. Um, you know, that some of them have actually said it now. They've come forward and said and said that they think this is in the the latter stages, whatever that means. Uh, you know, a- Andy, what, what, what is your sort of preparation for the end of this thing? You know, Buck, it's really hard because we don't even know what the report is, right? Um, you know, we know that the regulations require the 
special counsel to give a report to the attorney general explaining his reasoning in either charging people or not charging them. Now, you don't have to do much explaining when you charge them, right? The indictments speak for themselves. Uh, but when you don't charge someone, it's very common, of course, within the Justice Department for a line prosecutor to explain to the supervisor, here's why I don't think we should charge and get approval for that. But that never becomes public. Uh, and here it seems to me that you also have the overlay of the, the fact that this is always masqueraded as a counterintelligence investigation from the beginning. Counterintelligence investigations are classified. So you have three provisions, right? You have the, the regulations that say this is a confidential report from the special counsel to the attorney general. You have Justice Department policy that you don't go public with the evidence on uncharged people. And you have classified information running through the investigation because it's counterintelligence. So I don't even know what's going to be in the report, but I don't see how that gets publicized. And Andy, at this point, is there anything that, that you think is, is still outstanding that you, you know, what, what do you really want to know after? I mean, I've been, we've been having you on this show for now going on two years to talk about where we've come in this whole process. And, and I know you've been writing a lot about it and analyzing it. Uh, I, I mean, how, how do you just overall assess what's happened here to the president? I mean, it, to, to me, it looks like there were some senior people in the government who really didn't want Trump to win. And they at a minimum abused their discretion and authority to use the investigative powers, not just of the FBI, but of the of the intelligence community, as you said, going a counterintelligence fishing expedition. And it seems like there's really not going to be any accountability for that. Well, I hope there is going to be accountability for that. I've never wanted Mueller to take that on, Buck, because I thought, you know, number one, um, he had enough to deal with to to investigate what he what we think he was told to investigate which was whether there was involvement of the trump campaign in russia's uh you know cyber espionage against the election uh especially when i saw who he picked to investigate that i never wanted him to to do anything else i wanted him to just stick to that and get it done i think somebody else needs to i don't i don't like special counsels but i think somebody needs to look at what happened with the investigators, because it seems to me that there was abuse of the government's counterintelligence authorities in order for the incumbent administration to spy on the opposition campaign. I think the uh, the big ticket item out of Lisa Page's testimony that we've heard about is that, to me, it eliminates all doubt, if there ever was any, that uh, Donald Trump was the was obviously the the target of this investigation. You know, they structured it in a way that they could say they were only looking at the campaign. They were clearly looking at him. I mean, she even says, you know, look, if he doesn't get elected, then there's no national security problem, right? I mean, that pretty much tells you everything that you need to hear. And I think what happened here, Buck, is everybody thought Hillary was going to win, and everybody figured this was counterintelligence and it was classified, so it would never, ever see the light of day. Mrs. Clinton would never have had any in incentive to uh, expose it. So this thing was going to die a death. Uh, if she had won, you would never have heard about Russia and the election again. Uh, but what happened was once Trump won, they knew that in 10 weeks he was going to get access to all of the classified yeah. information I'm, I'm with you and, and they had to they justify did. everything yep. yeah they had to justify everything they had done 
beforehand. Yeah. It makes sense. Andy, we'll have you back when we get that report for sure. Andy McCarthy, everybody, National Review and Fox News. Read his stuff on nationalreview.com. Andy, thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Well, there's clear evidence uh, on the issue of collusion. For people who wonder, what does collusion look like when it's charged as a crime? Bob Mueller has told us. Have Democrats found any evidence of collusion? Uh, yes, we have. Can you agree that there has been no evidence of collusion coordination or conspiracy that has been presented thus far between the Trump campaign and Russia? Uh, no, I don't agree with that at all. I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight. All you have right now is a circumstantial case. Uh, actually, no, Chuck. So you Director have Clapper. seen direct evidence of collusion? Uh, I don't want to go into specifics, but I will say that there is evidence that is not circumstantial uh, and, uh, and is very much worthy of investigation. I would look at it more of a tactical move. So Nancy Pelosi definitely wants to impeach the president. Uh, they just want to find more evidence. So she's staking out a position uh, that ultimately I think she will come around if they do in fact find their mythical animal that they're looking for on collusion, obstruction, or in any of Trump's business deals. So I see it as a tactical move. I wouldn't read a lot into it other than it's just uh, something that they normally do. She's actually just saying something publicly that privately ah. she's probably not saying to her members. Devin Nunes is absolutely correct here. This is all about tactics with Nancy Pelosi. I, and, and you know, I never bought it for one second when she said there was not going to be impeachment. That's just, that's just nonsense. You know that's nonsense. The only reason they w would not impeach is if they think the political winds have shifted strongly against them. It's not because they have respect for the system or they want the American people to have their say in 2020. That is all horse manure. You know it is. But don't you love how Adam Schiff runs around acting like, oh, there's, all, there's already been all this evidence. Can't tell you what it is. And we still need to investigate, but there's plenty of evidence for this. Uh, People in the swamp here in D.C. have so thoroughly debased themselves in this effort to to get Trump. And one thing that I find remarkable, there are a lot of a lot of ways on on a policy level. There are a lot of things that you could point to to criticize Trump, to undermine Trump. But they put most of their eggs in the Russia collusion basket. And now that it's clear, that's I'm not going to belabor this analogy. Now the eggs are going to hatch. Uh, but now that it's clear that's not going to be what they wanted it to be, they're just ready to move on to the next thing and, and say that impeachment is what needs to happen here. And and I just find the whole thing to be so uh, so disheartening because people who, who point out, and this occasionally comes up when I say that the Mueller probe has been the most insane abuse of government power and authority uh, you know in in my lifetime that this is completely outrageous and that nothing like this ever happened to obama and nothing like this ever would have happened to obama and they say oh well what about birtherism it's just such a pathetic response i worked for during the obama administration for most of the obama administration i worked for one of the most right-wing major media organizations in the country, the the Blaze, which is now the Blaze Media, which is, as you know, merged with CRTV. I worked at the Blaze for six years. Not a single person that I worked with, not one person, uh, ran with the birther conspiracy, uh, thought that, that Obama was part of some international 
conspiracy to be a Manchurian candidate who was really from some other country to take over this country, all this stuff. Not one. Not one. Uh, and, and yet this is now talked about like, well, because because of birthers and people say, well, look what Trump did. And I say, yeah, Trump, Trump wanted some publicity. So he said, OK, let's see your birth certificate. And Obama showed the birth certificate. But this was not taken seriously by conservative media at the time. This was not something that, uh, you know, I, I, I in all my time on the air and on TV, I said, oh, you know, I think the birther thing is real. Meanwhile, the entirety of the left wing media thinks that the president of the United States and his campaign worked with Russia to cheat Hillary out of the election. They all believe that this whole time. And I don't think we should let them off easily when they're going to try to just sort of tiptoe away backwards, not away from all investigations, just into other investigations and away from Russia collusion into, you know, porn star payoffs and Trump's business dealings and, you know, uh, AMI and David Pecker and all this other stuff. That's where they're heading. Speaking of the left wing media, this is what Sam Donaldson said on CNN about uh, Tucker Carlson. Play six. Can you think of uh, Matt Lauer or any of the other people, uh, Charlie Rose, saying, well, wait a moment. Uh, it was just in jest. It was in fun. I mean, this was something that, that wasn't that important, was it? Uh, yes, it was important. It happened long ago. But yes, it's still important. Your character is important. And what's happening today is a revolution when it comes to the way men treat women. Well, you say, but this is not that. No, this is vulgarity. This is hate speech. This is homophobic speech. This is the kind of speech that, if left unchecked, will change this country forever. It's just as bad, and it should be punished in the way that the men were punished for what they did. Uh, this is the hate speech. This is homophobic speech. This is the kind of speech, if left unchecked, will change this country forever. I mean, Sam Donaldson, the, there is no one that you can find in the public sphere who it, it, it thinks that their, their pronouncements are more important and are backed up with less intellectual heft than the network news anchors of yesteryear, of, of, of you know, years past. Dan Rather, Sam Donaldson. These people don't know a darn thing about anything. And yet we're supposed to listen to them because they were on TV for years and their their hair was just right. You know, it's such nonsense. This is the kind of speech, if left unchecked, will change this country forever, he says. What kind of hysterical pearl clutching is that? And Tucker said that on open radio. It's not like they taped private conversations. He said it a decade ago. It didn't change anything for anyone. But the left is desperate to maintain this little tool that they can use against conservatives where they can crush conservatives at will they really want to keep this going and they know that if they fail here it will call into question whether they will be able going forward to do this and to crush conservatives at will we'll talk more about tucker here coming up in just a moment and that is why we're here to say to advertisers drop box Americans support actual real news because what you are supporting now is hurting people and is dangerous. Can you raise your hand if you think Fox News gives one damn about women or Jews? No. Fox News. Fox News. Fox News. I think some of them were dropped on their heads when they were babies. That was the Media Matters mob outside of the Fox News building in New York City today trying to protest, trying to get more sponsors to drop 
And uh, let me just say that uh, these people are morons. Um, I, I don't mince words about this. The people who support them, including people in media who support Media Matters, they are dis- they are disgraceful. They are cowards and they should be ashamed. Media Matters is a fraud from top to bottom. It started out to balance out the two, the the overly pro-Christian viewpoint in media, which is just on its on its face insane. But Media Matters is a taxpayer uh, a, a, a taxpayer uh, advantaged political action committee. I mean, it's just a, it's just a hit group on conservatives and media. It's Soros funded. I mean, this is all the worst of the worst. And the people that go to work for media matters should be ashamed of what they do. They don't bring they bring nothing constructive to the table. They aren't helping anyone. They don't do anything worthwhile. The entire media apparatus is already on their side of these political issues. You know, Media Matters is, is an organization that thinks that it's helping free or pretends, I should say, that it's helping free speech and helping debate in this country by trying to take the dozen or so news networks that all agree with each other and crush the one net, uh, news network that doesn't and talk new talk radio, by the way, with it. I mean, talk radio, the two things that the left just hates that they have not been able to stamp out yet are talk radio and Fox News. They've, are, they've seized control of social media, my friends. I knew they were going to do it, and they've done it. Social media is now the domain, the province of the left. We can still operate there. We can still use it. But when push comes to shove, it is hostile territory. We have one cable news channel with full-spectrum coverage. I know there are a few others. People say, what about One America? I, I haven't really watched much One America. I have some friends who work for One America, um, but it's not in... It's not on all the different cable providers, so it's already at a huge disadvantage to say MSNBC and CNN. So, you know, this is just I'm so uh, thankful that Tucker is just finally saying enough. And I really hope that he continues to have the support he's had on on the corporate side, um, because uh, this I I don't want to live in this country anymore and, and have to deal with the whims of the the sadistic, vindictive left and all their speech policing and all their nonsense. I just think we've all had enough. We don't want to be subject to what the latest social media, social justice mob thinks is necessary. And they've gotten away with this strategy for far too long. And it's all a joke. It's ridiculous. The left never gets in trouble. Joy Reid. I was going to say Joy Behar. Joy Behar. Hello. I'm on TV. I'm a moron, but I get paid a lot to be the woman who goes, oh, Trump is awful. Uh, But Joy Reid over at at MSNBC, she wrote stuff that was clearly anti-gay. And it was a long time ago, but she wrote something anti-gay. And then she pretended she didn't write it and that she was hacked and she was going to get the FBI to investigate. She still has her job. And by the way, I'm okay with her still having her job. And I think she's a clown and she should be mocked for that. But, you know, she still has her job. You just go down the list. This guy, uh, Kara Sony, who is like the number two at Media Matters behind David Brock, who is just a, a, a gross human being. Uh, he, he said a bunch of stuff years ago that's come out now that, that would be completely unacceptable to the left. We just, we know what it is. They just don't. This is how they like it. This is how they like the Department of Justice to act. This is how they like 
the media outrage mobs to act. You know, the, the left always gets away with it and we don't. It's always just used as a as a cudgel, as a battergram against conservatives. And I just think it's so there, there are some conservatives that came after me and, and I've had a lot of, you know, I've had far lefties come after me. I've had uh, people from all kinds of, of far left organizations in the last few days because I've been very vocal about how I, I, it doesn't matter to me what Tucker said. It doesn't matter. I, I don't approve of what he said at all. I think I think some of what Tucker said was was not smart stuff to say, but he says a lot of things. He's been saying a lot of things for a long time. And, you know, he he's a good guy with beliefs that I agree with, who treats the people he works with very, very well. He's an important voice in this country. He's a family man. He's a father of, I think, three. He's been, you know, married to his wife for decades. And, you know, sometimes he likes to be a little, he, well, years ago, he liked to be a little edgy. So what? Ten years later, you're going to fire him? I mean, this is insane. And as you know, the most important part of this is that if they get Tucker, it's just whoever comes next, they'll wait. They'll get that person too. Nobody that you know in the media, nobody worth listening to in the media who does enough content, who writes enough things, who is unscripted enough, is without sin when it comes to the left's view of what's acceptable discourse. Nobody. You know, there, there are some limits to this, right? There is, I know there are some people that have gone further than others, and some people have made what you could accurately call, a, you know, a mistake or have said something that was wrong or that was hurtful or that was. But no, nobody's perfect on this stuff. And really, the, the check on what somebody's saying on the content side of things should be, what, is their, what does their audience really think of it? You know, do, do people still show up to listen? Do the American people still show up to listen? The American people, or at least some of the American people, care to hear what this individual has to say? You know, it should be the marketplace of ideas. It should not be some people who get to say, you don't have a license for this marketplace. Get out. We're taking it away from you because we don't like what you said 10 years ago. I'm hoping this is a watershed moment with, with Tucker standing in defiance of the outrage mobs demands for him to take the knee. All they do now, and this has been the case for years, the left-wing outrage mobs demand that you take the knee, apologize, engage in a kind of ritual self-humiliation, and then they take your head. You know, they, I'm in kind of a Game of Thrones mood this week, but the left's paradigm, the left's approach to speech that offends now on the right, not on the left, is that they pull a Prince Joffrey. Just, just confess your sins and confess your sins and and we will show you mercy. And you go, okay, and you confess your sins. And, the, and, then, and then the left goes, well, thanks for your confession. Now we know you're guilty. Off with his head. That's what they do. So why, why debase yourself? Why put yourself through that process? And also, what does that tell us about the people on the left and whether they have any honor? The major media outlets, the, the, the Jeff Zuckers and the Brian Stelters and the you know, the, just go down the list of all these different, I can't even keep up with all these different left-wing organizations. You know, these people that make this big deal of, oh, Tucker and what he said. is The Washington Post media reporters, I don't even know their names. What does it say about them that they're a part of this process? They have no shame. They have, there's no dignity that they have to protect here. No sense of, of decency. Uh, we are at a war for the soul of this country every day. You and I are in a war for the soul of this country doesn't always feel that way 
probably sounds grandiose when you hear me say it, but you know it's true. There are dark forces that are at work here that want to strip away our fundamental freedoms and rights that do not believe in the genius of the founding, do not believe in individual liberty. They want control. They want their way. And they've been brainwashed into thinking things are true that are not true. And if you won't agree that those things are true, they want to come after you too. You bend the knee, you do what you're told, or they will destroy you. I refuse. I refuse. This is going to be a problem at some point, my friends. There, there will come a day when I will have to say I refuse, and I'm sure there will be consequences. But you know what? I, I will have to suffer those consequences because I refuse to play their game. The left is unhinged, immoral, unfair, and has no interest in reforming itself right now. So if they want to make this a war for the soul of the country, which they already have, I say we fight back and, and stop surrendering and hope that they're nicer to us. Stop pretending that only through our capitulation can we reach some degree of peace and harmony. No, we, all we reach is our own conquest. I say no, and so does Tucker. God bless him for it. Just last night here in D.C., I drove past the AARP building, and I know it's a big, fancy building, and it's an organization that a lot of people have heard of, but you know the AARP is pretty left-wing, really into the Affordable Care Act and pushes for progressive causes. So if you're a senior listening to this, I really want you to check out my friends at AMAC. Why do I recommend AMAC? Well, it has over 1.5 million Americans who are already members, and AMAC gives you all the great benefits that you might get from another senior organization like discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans. So you get all that stuff. But also AMAC is pushing for policies and for a future in this country that you agree with. So stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause of conservatism is even greater. Tell your family and tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. I'm here at the cafeteria PS 130 in Brooklyn with these amazing kids. I was spending time with fourth graders, seventh graders, and they are passionate about wanting to make sure they are healthy and the earth is healthy. And they believe in Meatless Mondays. And I want you to know why we're going to do it for the whole school system, because we need our kids to be healthy and a more balanced diet, more vegetables, more fruits, more meatless options, good for everyone, good for the earth, too. We know that we're going to have to do a lot to fight global warming. That includes looking at how our food is produced and choosing some other options, striking a better balance. That's what this is all about. And I got to tell you, when you're talking to a 10-year-old and they know this is good for their body and good for the earth, that proves we're going in the right direction. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Kids told me that the food tastes better. Now that they have these meatless options, they're getting a lot of great tasting food that they're excited to eat. They don't want to throw away or pass by. They actually want to eat their lunch. And as a parent, that is music to my ears. Always want our kids to eat their veggies. Now they're actually doing it. Enjoy. So Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York is a meathead. Not a very smart guy. Amazing that he is the mayor of the largest city in the United States, given how deeply unimpressive he is. Just a man who learned the political system, the political game in New York City, just wrote it as a Democrat all the way to the top. And some are saying he now has presidential aspirations, folks. So don't think for those of you who want to just jump to, oh, Buck de Blasio's your problem. 
De Blasio is not our problem. He's your problem. No, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case. But he also illustrates a trend that you see among Democrats these days. And it is one that from the mouths of babes, the most complex policy solutions shall flow. No, no, no. I do not care. And for any 10 year olds, Team Buck 10 year olds, you guys are awesome. Thank you for listening. But I do not care what you think about global warming. Okay, (laughs) I'm just letting you know we're going to need a little more time on the subject, a little more time in the classroom before we're going to have a a real debate about global warming. Uh, You know, 10 year olds don't know anything about policy. And and that's not a put down. They're not supposed to know anything about policy. Four year olds don't know anything about policy either. Most 25-year-olds don't know anything about policy, but we at least have to give them the option of, of voting and, and being involved because some of them do, and they're adults. Uh, but this idea of a meatless Monday to combat global warming, this is central planning for your kids' lunch tray. That's what they're doing. So when I say things on this show that sound like it's meant to rile you up. Sounds like, oh, Buck, you must be saying this just because people will get, you know, all fired up about it. No, 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 that's not true. I'm telling you this because it's what's happening. You know, when I tell you that they're propagandizing to your kids and that the green energy agenda is really just a Trojan horse for an entirely socialist state, I really mean it. That is what they are doing. That is the plan here. And that they would want to influence the food your child is eating should also tell you a lot about how devoted they are to this system. Uh, Now, I know the good news is that for a lot of Americans, we're not giving up meat. It's not happening. Uh, I I know people that whenever I say this, there, there are some people listen to this show who are like world-class bodybuilders who are also vegans. There, there are a few that I've gotten, and they're like, Buck, look at these abs. I did all this with tofu. You know, maybe you're just some kind of special specimen, and, I, and I, I'm just telling you, I can't live on tofu, man, all right? I need all the red meat I could get. So for those of you who are listening to this and are, are vegans in impeccable shape and could, could teach me many, many, many things about how to do the kettlebell swings... Uh, just God bless, man. I, I, or, and woman, I just, it's not for me. I can't give up meat. It is one of those joys, those few joys that, you know, I can enjoy day to day. Uh, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think I go without eating at least some form of meat as in some form of protein on, on any day, but that this would combat global warming. Think of how foolish this is. What do they, what do they think is happening by doing this? This is just propagandizing to children. This is brainwashing them. This is why you have 12-year-olds who show up in Dianne Feinstein's office. and are, But what about the world going to end in 12 years? Why are you a bad member of the Senate? We're very, very scared. And, and I feel bad for those little kids because they are actually scared. They're not, they're not pretending. You know, they still believe in Santa and they still believe in catastrophic climate change. And... Santa's at least fun. <laughs> Santa, at least there's an upside. Catastrophic climate change, there's no upside. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't see how any person can think that changing the lunch menu in New York City public schools so that they have meatless Monday 
is going to do anything other than allow adults to have some virtue signaling and to convince kids that they have to make completely inane, foolish, worthless changes in their day-to-day lives so that they can save the planet. Uh, this, this is cult-like behavior. And I'm sure if you were to look into the carbon footprint, if, if you did more, re- if, if anyone were to do more research on the carbon footprint used, used by some of our farming methods, and I told you about, I think it was palm oil, and how palm oil was supposed to be this, uh, f- this new biofuel, and it was going to be amazing, and, do all, and, and turns out that palm, uh, palm oil production and what's necessary in terms of the destruction of forests to create palm oil has been way worse for the environment, way worse for the environment than anything, um, anything else that could have happened there. I mean, you know, then, then the just continuation of the status quo versus cutting down all these trees. Uh, and, and this happens over this happens over and over again. And, and I always tell you about this book and it's just it's a little dry and it's a little academic, but seeing like a state and it just walks you through. It's an academic uh, treatment of the subject, but it walks you through how state planning because state planning and central planning is what I mean by state planning, because central planning does not allow for localized improvisation, as in changes in, in approach, in strategy, based on conditions and immediate results. Because central planning cannot handle those things as well as decentralized planning can, it is always doomed to massive failures. There are going to be enormous failures from central planning because of this. You know, one thing that I'm hoping to spend more time talking about on the show is, and this is, you know, people have been asking about this recently. I have been thinking I want to get back a little bit to the roots of the Freedom Hunt from when I first started on the Saturday show and would do some pretty deep political philosophy with all of you. I mean, it's one thing that I don't know where else people are getting it these days. It's certainly not commonplace in conservative uh, conservative media to see and to hear about I, I, I mean political philosophy at the level of we're really going to talk about uh, the underlying uh, systems of of belief and understanding for why it is that socialism is destined to fail and not just socialism sucks look at Venezuela there's more than just socialism sucks look at Venezuela as I've been saying to you um, but one of them is to borrow from uh, borrow from the great thinkers on on these issues like uh, von Mises and Hayek and look at why why does so forget about socialism in practice and the history of socialism because we do a lot of that but but to my point about central planning and why it fails and why governments are doomed to keep repeating these same failures around central planning here's what I can tell you the the root fallacy of socialism is that it inverts the relationship in a state where the producers are the ones making the decisions. What you really want are the consumers making decisions about what is being produced because that is the natural order of an economic relationship, right? You know, if if the producer can make the determinations for the consumer, then there is no check and balance really on what is being produced. Then there's really no way to... uh, 
to have those localized improvisations, right? So here, here's a here's a way to 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 speak about this. That's a little more down in 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 or I guess out of the the weeds. You know, if I show up at a marketplace and I have nothing but uh, gluten free cupcakes, and one of the producers today at the Hill made gluten free cupcakes because she knows that I can't eat gluten, and it was someone else's birthday, but she didn't. She I'm always left out. Whenever I know it's sad, whenever they order pizza for the office or there's a cake for someone's birthday. So one producer, producer Jess, was very nice of her. She made gluten free cupcakes and they were amazing, by the way. But I haven't. But let's say I showed up to market and all I have are gluten free cupcakes. And the, the people showing up were like, no, we like gluten in our cupcakes. We think it tastes better. Well, if the producers are in charge, if I'm the producer and I'm in charge, I get to say, no, no, I don't care. Take these muffins. Well, then what happens, right? Then, then how do we get happier consumers? Well, what we know is consumers will go somewhere else to get things. But if I'm their only option, because if I'm the central planner, now people are just getting something that they don't want, right? I mean, this is a very simplified version of it. But what you want is I show up with a product and people are freely choosing to buy my product at the end. And, and that is the driving force behind the transactions. Socialism inherently True socialism, where the means of production are controlled by the state and usually by some kind of central committee, you know, some kind of dictatorship of the proletariat. There are different versions of really the same thing. Uh, It's never really the proletariat, as you know, Uh, but it inverts that relationship. It perverts that relationship. And therefore, you will always have dislocations and dysfunctions in the marketplace. Now, that, that's that's a, a little a little basic von Mises. We'll get into more von Mises another time, team. Uh, but I, I do think that we should uh, get into more. Probably be the third hour of the show this time on the show because I know we got to cover the news of the day, and uh, I need to make good on the promise that we have for all of our radio stations across the country that people who tune in will get the news of the day, which we always do. But I, I'd like to dig deeper into this because I, I think that the more you, the more we can learn about socialism together. And the history of it, the ideology of it, the structure of it, the more we realize what an unfathomably bad idea it is for this country. Global Verification Network, the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. I'm a big believer in making sure that you do all of the due diligence necessary on any deals you've got going on for business, on any employees, any hires you're bringing into your office or to your place of work. And you need the right people working with you on that. That's Global Verification Network. If you are currently working on HR somewhere or if you're a small business owner all the way up to the CEO, you want to call Global Verification Network and tell them about your background investigation needs. They can work with you. They can tailor the program to your specific desires. It's the way to go. I'm telling you, they're headquartered in Chicago, but they have offices throughout the country and the risk mitigation experts of Global Verification Network are the best in the business. Go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned. We're going to be issuing an emergency order of prohibition to ground all flights of the 737 MAX 8 and the 737 MAX 9 and planes associated with that line. Uh, Any plane currently in the air will go to its destination and thereafter be grounded until further notice. So uh, planes that are in the air will be grounded 
if they're the 737 MAX, will be grounded upon landing at the destination. Uh, pilots have been notified. Uh, airlines have been all notified. Airlines are agreeing with this. The safety of the American people and all people is our paramount concern. Boeing has grounded its uh, 737 MAX planes after this uh, terrible tragedy in Ethiopia, uh, where you had over over 150, or no, it was 157 people killed uh, shortly after it took off from uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And now people are really worried that these, this one type of plane, the 737 MAX, uh, may have a a lethal flaw in the electronics and in the, in the design of, of this very advanced aircraft in some way, which is why they're grounding these. You know, I know people gave that they gave President Trump a very hard time for what he wrote on on Twitter about this. Uh, here, I'll give you I'll give you exactly the the tweet. He, he said uh, <laughs> this is a very, a very uh, Trump tweet. And he said um, that he thinks essentially that these planes are getting too advanced and too and too complicated. I actually, for some reason, I'm not able to I'm not able to find this one right now. Um, but oh, here we go. Airplanes are becoming far too complex to fly. Pilots are no longer needed, but rather computer scientists from MIT. I see it all the time in many products, always seeking to go one unnecessary step further when often old and simpler is far better. Split-second decisions are needed, and the complexity creates danger. All this for great cost, yet very little gain. I don't know about you, but I don't want Albert, I- Albert Einstein to be my pilot. I want great flying professionals that are allowed to easily and quickly take control of a plane. So you know, people gave him a really hard time on this one. You know, They really gave the Trumpster uh, some rough stuff over this. But I, I will say that I read years ago a piece, I think it might have been uh, in Business Insider, uh, and it was looking at why this, yeah, that's right, Air France, here we go, Air France 447, and this was from the early hours of uh, J- June 1st, 2009, when Air France Flight 447 from Rio to Paris went missing. And it, it, it just crashed and, and got killed 228 people on board. And there, were, there was crew error here. So the, so the, the pilot uh, did make a mistake. But then when they looked, at the, um, they looked at the error and how it caused the error, it's because of the side stick, the control of the stick, rather, used in these Airbus cockpits. And it's a very small lever, and it doesn't feel like something that you know you you when you pull down on it to go up, it, it just feels like it's too small to be controlling the plane. It doesn't give you the real feel of this plane. And uh, here I can. This is from this Business Insider piece. Air France four four seven was four hours into its eleven hour overnight journey when it was overwhelmed by disaster. Um. Two hours in, Mark Dubois, the veteran captain, was heading for a routine break. His deputy, David Robert, a seasoned flyer with 6,500 flying hours under his belt, was perfectly capable of coping with a tropical thunderstorm. As the airliner entered the worst of the weather, uh, Bonin, uh, Bonin told the cabin crew to prepare for turbulence. Eight minutes later, everyone on board would be dead. 
Bonan would, himself seems to have been spooked, calling attention to a metallic smell and an eerie glow in the cockpit. A few minutes later, the outside air temperature plummeted. The, the pitot tubes iced up and an alarm sounded. Uh, this is a really harrowing story when they go into how this all happened and how this just this jumbo jetliner ended up crashing, killing everybody on board. And, and, and when they finally did the analysis of it, it came down to the tiny little joystick didn't didn't feel like it was really controlling the plane to the pilot. It's kind of hard to explain. But, you know, when you have an actual you hold with both hands, you pull down, the plane goes up a tiny little joystick. that You just move with one finger. It was it just didn't. There were some pilot skills that didn't kick in. They had one final exchange where the one pilot said, climb, climb, climb. And the other said, but I've had the stick back the whole time. And then another pilot said, no, no, don't climb. No, no. Descend. Give me the controls. Give me the controls. And then, damn it, we're going to crash. This can't be happening. What's going on? Ten degrees of pitch. And then the recording ends. Air travel is very safe, my friends, but we still take risk every time we get up in the sky, 35,000 feet or whatever. And even the most advanced systems can fail. And ultimately... You really want somebody in that cockpit who really knows what they're doing, really understands not just the systems of the plane, but the basics of flight. And there's going to be a lot of questions asked about this Boeing system going forward. That much is for sure. Uh, we have roll call coming up your team in just a minute. Stay with me. Do you miss being on the show or is it a, such a different time that it would be no, hard to do? Different. I don't miss it. You know, uh, Everything now is if people don't like your politics, they everyone has to know your politics. When I I kind of use Johnny's model, people couldn't figure out, well, you and your Republican friends. Well, Mr. Leno, you and your Democratic mm-hmm. buddies. Mm-hmm. I will, and I would get hate mail from both sides equally. And I want well, that's fabulous. <laughs> yes. That's exactly that's what even. I want. Yes. But when people see you as one sided, it just makes it tough. And plus, you know, I did it when, uh, you know, Clinton was horny and Bush was dumb, and it was just a little easier. <laughs> <You're mad. laughs> you know, you know. Now it's all very serious. It's, it, everything is just so so. Na- I just like to see a bit of civility yeah. come back to it. You know. Hate to say it, but I miss Jay Leno, or at least Jay Leno's approach. What he described there is the way comedians should be. They should be devoted to their craft. They should be trying to make people laugh. It shouldn't be a nasty, virtue-signaling, opposition propaganda against Trump all the time, which is what it is. That's what comedians have become. That's what they do. And journalism is dead in this country. Comedy is dead in this country. There are very few places where you can go and, and get real comedy that's just meant to make you laugh that's not trying to preach that's not trying to engage in uh some kind of moral preening on stage or uh, and it's also left wing all the time and you know this country is really it has really been overtaken by a kind of uh mass psychosis where i mean liberals just cannot handle things that disagree with them or where they where they don't like them um you know, liberals just can't handle ideas that bother them. They just can't do it. I mean, I, I'm not even sure they are up for it. You know, I'm not even sure it's something that they can they can process anymore, which is why they feel so justified in acting like every 
idea that makes them uncomfortable is a threat to the state, is a threat to the integrity of this country and to our underlying values. Uh, they, they don't have a way of, of dealing with, of processing thoughts that, that bother them and, and that upset them. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I wish that that was not the case. And it also is unfortunate because n- nothing can be funny anymore. You can't make jokes. I can't tell you how many times I, on this show, I always feel very free because I know who's listening to the show. I know you who are listening to the show, but you know, we've had some, yeah, we've had some media matters, people that tune in. We've had some, you know, some, some bad folks that try to do oppo research based on what I say. The good news is I'm smarter than all of them and know more than all of them. And so they really have to misconstrue what I say or try to come up with some explanation. And they definitely don't want to ever debate me. I can't find a forum where I can really debate libs on the issues in a meaningful way. It just doesn't seem to exist anymore. They just won't do it. And those of you who say, Buck, what about rising the uh, show you do for the Hill? I just say, no, that's different because the mission of that show is both perspectives, but news that is down the middle. That is what I signed on for. It is not a, a it's not really a debate show. It's not Hannity and Combs. It's not Crossfire. It's this is how the right sees it. This is how the left sees it. And it's presenting both points of view. How well does that work? I mean, I leave that up to you as the viewer for those of you who watch it. But you, I don't get to do what I normally would do, which is dismantle arguments and when necessary, uh, crush stupidity that is presented to me because that's not the mission of that show, right? It's like if I'm going in to teach a class somewhere, I'm not, as the professor, I'm not there to ridicule the ideas of the kids. I'm there to teach them things and answer their questions. So if I start going after the kids for saying stupid things, I'm not doing my job. Anyway, I I just, comedy is another one of these areas where there's really just such a, um, such a dearth of good material. And it's because any joke now you get in trouble from everything is racist, everything is sexist. I mean, one one day I'll tell you all about some of the uh, behind the scenes corporate stuff that I've had to deal with in terms of not, not, not some of it involving me, most of it not, where someone will say, well, can you really say that? Not on radio. I'm very thankful that my, uh, my radio bosses understand that what I do requires a tremendous amount of freedom, and I stand by my words, and they stand by my right to stand by my words. But in some of the other, you know, I worked at CNN for a little while. Some of the stuff that I was told behind the scenes that you can and can't say and everything, it's just... It's just all nonsense, man. I just want to live in a country where we have freedom of speech, freedom of thought. I want real individual liberty. And I want everyone to grow up on the left and stop being such a bunch of huge babies. And let's all actually be able to laugh again. How about that? Wouldn't that be crazy? Jay Leno's right. They all want to know your politics, and it's just nuts. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. It is indeed time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. 
You know how we roll. You know how we do. Uh, I've got some travel coming up, so that means I'll be doing the show from, well, at least not in the next couple of weeks, but later on, some interesting and, and slightly exotic locale. So we'll have roll call coming to you live from wherever the heck I happen to be. But all in due time, my friends, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Philip writes, hey, Buck, I just looked up Dan Crenshaw's bio, and it seems he was born in Aberdeen, Scotland. So unfortunately, we won't be hearing Crenshaw 2024. Is that true? I I did not I did not know this. He, oh my gosh, he was born in the UK, but was he born to a? I gotta look up his bio. I'm I'm shocked. Uh, not I mean, look. This isn't a big deal, but it certainly seems to uh, to matter a bit. He, uh. Where was his dad? That's interesting. Let, let me look into this a little bit. Let me look into his bio, his background in terms of, you know, was his dad a uh, a U.S. citizen abroad for the government or something? I don't know. I, I got to look into this, but I did not know he was born on foreign soil. That is very interesting. So thank you for See, the, the team is always bringing me all kinds of knowledge here. Patch, now, keep in mind that there are people who say that Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz was going to be a problem for president. There's it's kind of an unsettled question here, folks. Uh, when people say a, a natural born citizen, Ted Cruz is born in Canada. Yep. Mr. I'm from Texas and I love the Constitution. Uh, that Ted Cruz, uh, you know, the guy who's more Texas than any Texan I know, even though he's a Cuban uh, Cuban parentage and born in Canada. Yes, uh, he is, some people say, not eligible to run for the presidency. I'm just saying. I'm just putting that out there. Patrick writes, Buck, I drive an Uber in Middletown, Connecticut. I get the pleasure to transport social justice warriors from Wesleyan University on a daily basis. Needless to say, I get my own version of justice by making them listen to conservative radio here in the Trumpmobile. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank you. That bit you did this morning with AOC full of ums and likes nearly made me crash into a telephone pole. I laughed out loud, and they were not amused. Keep up the great work. Shields high, Patrick. Well, Patrick, I, I just want to say that it is my hope that perhaps via your Trump mobile up in Middletown, Connecticut, we can win over some of these social justice warriors to reason and knowledge and wisdom. Just keep making them listen to the show. You should blast it a little bit more. And and maybe we'll get them to uh, figure out what they haven't been able to figure out so far. Cindy. Whoop. Cindy, it's loading for some reason on my screen. Taking extra. Oh, here we go. Hi, Buck. My take on the college scandal is this. Both students and parents knew what they were doing. How could they not? And the issue is not just fraud, but also disenfranchising other students who were not legitimately allowed entrance because some cheater took their slot, so to speak. These cheating students should immediately be required to reapply to the school legitimately, and if they meet all the entrance standards and requirements, ACT, SAT, grades, essays, interviews, whatever, they may continue with their education at said university. If not, however, they should be allowed to finish out the current term and then exit it from the university. Parents should not be able to buy their child's admittance to the university since they perpetuated fraud and should be prosecuted and fined. Those fines should go to scholarship funds for low-income students. Really enjoy your show, Cindy. Well, thank you, Cindy. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I just think it's important that we separate out 
the different schemes and, and artifices that were used here to gain illicit admission for different people that are covered in this indictment. And as I have been discussing here on the show, it is well known that if you write a big enough check and people say it's around the five to ten million dollar range for top tier schools. If you write a big enough check to the school, you can buy your way in. That has been well known for a long time. Everybody, everybody knows this. So if you can buy your way into the school, then what is it really that we're talking about here in terms of defrauding the other students? Now, this is where the, the schools have the right to sell these things. Um, be, you know, and that's what's important is that this is essentially their property, that these slots are the property of the school and they're a valuable thing. They're a thing of value um, that comes into play, to be sure. But when the, when you look at the, the way that the federal government does play in this sandbox, uh, you know, look at what they do with Title IX regulation and these campus uh, sexual assault tribunals and all these different things. That's all federal regulation on the campuses based in the fact that the colleges rely on federal loan guarantees, federal student for federal student loans, rather, so that kids can even go to these schools. So there's federal money going into the program. So this becomes a very tangled legal web very quickly. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that some aspects of this are, are good and some aspects are right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it depends on how we I mean, in terms of the prosecution and what's going on here. So it's a lot of layers and it's really amusing, though, is the good news. I mean, the stories about what's going on with this admission scam stuff are, are pretty, pretty entertaining. So that we got that going for us. Michael Wright writes, Buck, it's been hard to listen to you the last couple of days when you talk about illegal immigration. It makes me so mad when I hear about the situation. And how it seems almost impossible for us to change it. It's very demoralizing. And sometimes I have to fast forward the podcast because it seems like we are losing the fight. But today I was watching a recent YouTube video of Shapiro at University of Michigan. And I saw the crowd and it gives me a little hope. Then I heard Rush mention he was doing an interview with him. And I know you filled in for Rush from time to time. It makes me feel good to know you and Shapiro and the other young and talented conservatives are creating such great content backed by reason and founding principles, and so many people are gravitating towards it. it. Brings me hope that maybe we're slowly starting to win the hearts and minds of a new generation. I wish you would get out there more on YouTube or on other shows because you're so good at articulating arguments that are focused and easy to understand. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Michael, thank you so much, and uh, I do appreciate that, and I have uh, plans, additional plans for the future that will be enact enacted Soon, I hope, uh, as to more platforms and more ways to get out there um, and, and do more stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Kimberly writes, I'm all in on Crenshaw 2024. That would be so awesome. Well, Kim, I was, too, until I found out that he wasn't born in America. This could could be a little bit of a problem. Could be an issue. Natural born citizen, folks. That's that's the that's the language. And, you know, people and sub and subject to the jurisdiction thereof right so there's there's some stuff here there's some stuff here matt writes buck could you do a uh buck brief on the mission and origin of the young turks they seem to become ever more influential with the rise of aoc uh well i have to look into the group i mean they're basically a bunch of far left uh commies 
who are using the Internet to to substantial effect to build an audience of incredibly ignorant uh, quasi socialist hashtag resistance folks. And I, I'll look into them more, but they're really no. It's not that different. It's just another version of what you already see on, among the nation and salon dot com and other people on the far left where it's a lot of a mixture of uh, virtue signaling, identity politics, socialism and uh, they're just doing it better with social media than some of these other groups are. And that's that's something that we'll continue to see and look at. I have a feeling that uh, the Young Turks and I will be um, crossing swords, so to speak, in the future. Scott writes, good evening, Buck. Catching up on the podcast. You mentioned that you'll be going to China. On my first trip through China, I found myself unable to connect to my Gmail nor use Google Maps and Facebook. On my most recent trip, I used Google uh, Google Fi's phone service. The Chinese cellular service Google contracted through does not limit or censor what sites you visit. Another alternative is to use a VPN. Shields high, Scott. Well, thanks, Scott. I got to look into all this stuff and find out how I can uh, stay in communication and be able to do what I need to do when I'm going to China. Although I haven't even gotten my travel arrangements squared away yet, so it might take me a little time, but... There might be some Team Buck China stuff going on. That is certainly the plan. Uh, let's see here. Um, Caroline writes, hey, Buck, whoop, I love your segment on. And then it, it, it oh, there we go. I love your segment on the elite college scandal. You'll never guess who got into Harvard with mediocre SAT scores. David Hogg. Yes. The kid from Parkland High School capitalized on the shooting tragedy to thrust his anti-gun fist in the air and propel his otherwise lackluster self into the elite Ivy League. We'll see where it gets him. Shields high. Carolyn. Yeah, well, Carolyn, you know, Harvard's allowed to admit whomever they want. And they all these schools take in people that I think you would find to be very unimpressive. And, you know, we see look, look at Al Gore. Look at George W. Bush. I know he's a Republican, folks, but not exactly a brain scientist. Let's just be honest. You know, these people go to the most elite institutions. And Barack Obama graduated from Harvard Law School, was editor-in-chief of Harvard Law Review. Not a legal scholar in any way, shape, or form. Not somebody who's particularly uh, articulate or well-versed in the law. And yet, he managed to be the editor-in-chief of Harvard Law Review. Someone someone explain that to me. Well, we, all, we, we, we can figure out the explanations. So, you know, this is this is a really interesting eye opening moment for the country about what's really going on in these programs and in these schools. And I do think it's worthy of debate and discussion. So I think we should continue to uh, to put some focus on that. And speaking of focus, let's focus on the show tomorrow because that's the next one we've got. Please share the podcast, folks. Tell a friend. Go on iTunes. Download the Buck Sexton show. Subscribe to it. I will be talking to you all tomorrow. Same time, same place. Shields high. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. No matter what business you're in, no matter what field, no matter what part of the country, there's a place where you can grow your business connections to the right qualified candidates for the openings you have. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter sends your site to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. We are using ZipRecruiter right now at my office in D.C. to find some great hires, and we know we're going to get them because of ZipRecruiter. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com buck. 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. 